everybody, welcome to Theology Taco. I am your host, Tim. That's all I'm going to say. No, I'm your host, Tim, and it's Christmas. So, Merry Christmas. Today, my wife's family and I had a big old stinking Christmas party at our house. We had 17 kids here at one time opening up presents. We played lots of games. I got to read the Christmas nativity story from the Bible out of Matthew and Luke. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of hot chocolate and yummy food, Christmas cookies. So since it is Christmas, I thought I'd talk about Christmassy stuff, mainly the incarnation uh, or uh, the birth of Jesus. So I'm going to be addressing the date of Christmas the virgin birth, and a little bit about the doctrine of incarnation. Uh, this episode might be apologetic in tone, meaning I'm giving a defense of these things, but uh, hopefully it'll be more edifying and less uh, dry, I guess, as apolog- apologetics tends to be. And uh, Christmas, uh, as I've said, uh, is the celebration of Christ's birth, the moment God became incarnate in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, fully divine and fully human at the same time. Uh, but let's uh, let's start off with the date of December 25th. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? There is a lot of belief these days that uh, we celebrate on this day because we sort of Christianize the pagan holidays. And since uh, the pagan holidays celebrate were celebrated, uh, especially about the winter solstice, was basically we just adopted that and call it Christmas. And the, a lot of people say the date of Jesus' birth is at different times of year. Well, okay, so let me just address this first. Um, there's a lot of debate about this, and uh, nothing is fun without a debate, especially in Christianity. Uh, but the 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 birth of Jesus is really started in about the second or third century, and there's uh, two opposing theories: the history of religions theory and the calculation theory. The history of religions theory is probably one of the most popular and referenced today. Ooh, I got a Facebook alert. Sorry, it's the most popular and referenced, and it's about the adopting the pagan holidays. Uh, Christmas, in this case, was uh, Christians adopting uh, Sol Invictus, which is the Roman holiday of the Feast of the Unconquered Sun, who Aurelius, the um, Roman emperor, uh, he put uh, the sun god at the uh, head of the pantheon and said, hey, we're going to celebrate this now. And supposedly it was celebrated around this uh, the winter solstice on December 25th, blah, blah, blah. Scholars speculate that, uh, this, uh, continued when Christianity was made an official religion. Oh man. But uh, the, there's a problem with this in that the Sol Invictus, Invictus festival was only ever recorded once being on the winter solstice. And I've, and I found references to that, uh, in the chronograph of 354, it lists, it lists this uh, Christmas happening the same time as the Sol Invictus Festival around the winter solstice. Who, boy, and uh, 
So it's only ever recorded once in that spot, but the Sol Invictus Festival is also recorded at different times of the year, including winter, spring, and summer. So in that case, in the, in the early days, it doesn't that appear that pagan festivals had that much influence on the celebration of Christmas itself. The calculation theory is something uh, that has been developed a little bit more recently, and it, it, it can be a little bit more interesting. Uh, scholars are still tying things to the Roman calendar, though, with the emphasis on the vernal equinox in the spring and then on the winter solstice. But without getting too much into the history of it all, they're tying the conception of Christ to the vernal equinox on March, near March 25th, and giving, and that would give Jesus nine months to gestate, and a full nine months would be December 25th, uh, his birthday. This theory is uh, also, uh, from what I've heard, and uh, it mirrors a, a belief in Jewish and early Christian understandings of death. Supposedly, the belief entails that you die on the day that you were conceived. So there are estimates that place Christ's death around the 25th of March, um, which, um, so that would be his also his conception in this belief, which would make the day of his birth also December 25th. The problem with this theory, especially, uh, the problem with this theory is that there is little evidence to support it, just like the other theory. So as far as the early church and its celebration of Christmas is concerned, we're really trying to answer how many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop. Uh, that there are, there's inconclusive research on why we celebrate it on December 25th, or why they celebrated it on that day. So, it's not always tied to the pagan holidays. However, it can be said that later on, especially when the, the church came into power uh, after Constantine and during the Holy Roman Empire, that Christianity did start to Christianize pagan religions, which is why we get something uh, like Yule's associated with Christmas. What's funny, though, I guess it's not funny. What's important to remember that about the early Christians is that while the birth of Christ was significant. It was the resurrection that was the most significant part of the faith because that is what testifies to the, to the true identity of Jesus being the Messiah. Okay, are you still with me? Do I hear crickets? Oh, hopefully not. Let's move on. You know, I was also supposed to add sound effects into this podcast, but uh, Audacity doesn't make that e easy with you know, wave files and mp3s, so until I get a mixing board, I'm probably going to be sound effect free. Anyways, let's go to the virgin birth. I was going to try to talk about the virgin birth of Jesus and the doctrine of incarnation separately, but they, they really do go hand in hand. The incarnation in these terms is God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. The doctrine then is the is it's the official stance of the historical church and current orthodox churches which says that jesus uh, was and is fully divine and fully human in the person of jesus 
The virgin birth then is it's the vehicle of Christ's incarnation. Both Matthew and Luke's gospels state that Mary conceived Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit instead of getting knocked up by her bay, Joseph. Consequently, this is the part of the birth narrative that gets the most critical attention, and I've I've got a few reasons why. So there's critics of Christianity, of course, uh, and there are some within Christianity who suggest that this birth narrative of Jesus it mirrors too many ancient stories in ancient religions and you know the Greek myths, especially where Zeus impregnates women through means other than normal methods. For example, the Greek hero Perseus, his mother was imprisoned by her jerk father. And while she was imprisoned, uh, Zeus visited her as a golden mist and bam, she got pregnant. This argument usually serves to function as a foil for Christianity in claiming that its beliefs are a mix of other ancient beliefs. But it fails to consider that Christ is fully divine and fully human, whereas these other ancient religions or these myth, myth, mythological stories, these demigods are are half human and half God. It also fails to, to recognize the uniqueness of the Gospels in that the Gospels don't really, they don't include seduction in, in, this, in the birth narrative. And there is no real more moral ambiguity among the, the main characters like you would see in the other ancient texts of the ancient religions or uh, mythological stories. So in other words, uh, whereas Zeus wanted to get his freak on with with an earth chick, uh, the birth of Jesus was meant to usher in the salvation of humanity. Um, another I can't talk. Another crit criticism nope, still can't talk is uh, of the virgin birth is that some say it's incompatible with Jesus's humanity. This was the belief of Emil Brunner. Now, those of you who have been to college and have taken a sociology class, you would have heard Emil Brunner been brought up because he was very influential in the field of sociology. But what may have not been told to you is that he was mainly a theologian. I thought that was pretty shocking when I first learned it, but uh, we don't need to get into a conspiracy here. Uh, his problem was that Jesus was lacking a human father, and that meant Jesus would be lacking the most essential ingredient of being a human, which is being conceived and born in the same way everyone else is. And that's kind of silly if you ask me, because even if Jesus wasn't conceived via the bedroom, he still came, about, came out of the birth canal like everyone else. It is also a little reductionist, don't you think, in that it boils down what it means to be human to just biological components. Those components are important, nobody's arguing that, but it removes the reality of humanity being informed through experience. Humans learn what it means to be human through experiencing life and things like that. Uh, the third and last criticism is something that I've heard more and more recently. Uh, I believe I read an article by Peter, the Bible scholar Peter Enns who brought up something like this. The argument goes that 
If the virgin birth is so important, then why does the rest of the New, New Testament stay, stay silent about it? Uh, some commenters will point to Paul, who's credited with writing over half the New Testament, and he virtually mentions nothing about Christ's birth except for in Galatians 4, where it says that he Christ was born of a woman. But silence, uh, so for them, silence might equal re rejection. However, silence does not always equal rejection. And we shouldn't automatically assume that about uh, the biblical writers. But what, what we can try to consider is that uh, the relationship between the Apostle Paul and Luke. Luke is the author of his own gospel and widely thought to be the author of the book of Acts. Uh, it's significant because in a few different places in the book of Acts, Luke counts himself as Paul's travel companion in what we call the we passages of Acts. Being that Luke was credited as being an author of his own gospel, it would make sense. We can postulate that Luke and Paul may have had discussions about the virgin birth and their travels together. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Paul preaches what has been passed down to him. However, the way that Paul writes his letters, he's addressing specific, usually writing to address specific concerns of that church. And because we don't see anything about the virgin birth, that probably wasn't a big priority for them. But what's also important to remember is that Paul's letters, a few of them predate the uh, writings of the Gospels. So being that he was friends with Luke bef before the Gospels were written, and that but that Luke included the virgin birth in his own Gospel, it's more than possible that the virgin birth was a belief of that first church. Okay, all right. Those were my rebuffs to those criticisms of the virgin birth. And so, but I, I want to tell you why I believe in the reality of the virgin birth. And here we go. The writers of the Gospels and people like Paul lived in the power of the Pentecost. The birth of the church was empowered and relied on the activity of the Holy Spirit in manifest ways. Uh, you know, in Acts, it, it says that Philip was transported by the Holy Spirit. And people spoke in tongues. And they were healed. People were healed. So that's one of the things I'm talking about. The power of the Holy Spirit made manifest. Those who spread the message of Christ experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and to some extent knew what the Holy Spirit was capable of. So I don't think it's any wonder that both Matthew and Luke believed in, that the Holy Spirit was the manner in which Mary conceived Christ and why they included it in the birth narrative because it's, the te it's a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit, something that they were actively engaging with. Uh, I understand that it's uncomfortable for people to believe because of the supernatural e emphasis, but what, I mean, I don't see why that's so different from the rest of scripture where God is acting supernaturally. I mean, we, we do assert that the virgin birth 
was a historical event, but just because we say it's a historical event, are we are we supposed to divorce the miraculous power of God from a historical event? I don't see how or why we should do that. Because if we try to do that out of comfort, then, you know, we might as well just be functional deists. I also understand that it resembles the folklore of some stories, but the problem with that is scripture testifies to God constantly one-upping what we create in order to show us uh, how it's really done. Uh, lastly, the, the miraculous nature of the virgin birth acts as a sort of bookend of God breaking into history. It displays the, it, it displays the kingship of God over creation by coming into the world by his own means, leading up to the second bookend where Jesus consummates its, his reign by returning in equally miraculous means that we have yet to see. Yep, that's my opinion. All right, so I just covered that, of course. And now I want to talk a little bit about the doctrine of incarnation. And, you know, there's just so much history and so many theological components behind the doctrine of incarnation. In fact, the church really didn't have a good grasp on it until about the mid-5th century, which, you know, I think that's okay to admit. We're all adults adults and it takes time to figure out things especially when you've got the uh, Greek philosophy confusing things for you or too much inclusion of Greek philosophy but anyways uh, there are some things though that we need uh, that I think I, I I can include in this and one of the things is the the problem of Gnosticism and especially Docetism, which was sort of like a, an offspring of Gnosticism. Docetism, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, who knows? Not me. Uh, it said that Jesus only appeared to be human, but was not. He was spirit, but he only appeared to be human, and he only appeared to suffer on the cross, which has huge implications. This was kind of an uh, an influence of Greek philosophy, which saw matter, which which is physical things like creation and the body. That's all evil. It's corrupt. So God, who is spirit, would not would of course not corrupt himself. He wouldn't he wouldn't do anything like that. So there's this big chasm between spirit and uh, matter. But the incarnation of Jesus shows us something completely different because, you know, God created humanity to be good. He created creation to be good. And it's, of course, it was corrupted by the fall. It's been corrupted by, by sin. However, that doesn't mean for God, you know, he says that all things are possible. So in order for to reconcile us back to him, God became incarnate in, in the person of Jesus. He was flesh. He was born into this world just the way, the same way everybody else was born into a human. He was a human person while fully divine. So he could save us because only God can save. Um, and he, we are able to relate to Jesus because he's human. So that's kind of what the incarnation does for us. But it, the story of the nativity 
in an incarnation in relation to the story of the nativity does something else for us. So pretend you've never heard of the nativity story. Maybe you haven't. When you think of a king or a god coming to rule, what do you think of? Do you think a lot of a, a, a lot of uh, fanfare or a, maybe a strong display of power? Do you think of some person being all decked out in armor, walking up to the throne and then dethroning that ru ruler somehow? I think maybe that's how a lot of people would see it, especially in this day and age when we have such depictions uh, in the movies and popular media. But we don't see that. Oh, we, I mean, we see that in history too, but we don't see that in the story of Jesus. What do we get? Moments after Jesus' birth, Christ was placed in a feeding trough, which is called a manger. This means that there were animals nearby, livestock. And where they are, so is some stank, nasty smell. Uh, while he was in this manger, he was visited by shepherds. And by all historical accounts, shepherds were also very smelly. And they were, uh, um, some research I've come across suggests that they were kind of vulgar as well. But this immediately puts Christ within the context of everyday people rather than royalty. And also consider, okay, it was common then back then to get married young. Mary was a teenager when she got pregnant, just like I'm sure a lot of other wives were back then. And I think Joseph was probably pretty young at well, maybe like a few, like, maybe three to four years older, although I can't say that for certain. But people also didn't have a lot of long life expectancy back then. So I'm pretty sure they got married in their teens. Um, and then she got pregnant out of wedlock. And Mary, he was going to divorce her. Quiet, he, but because he was a nice guy, he was going to do it quietly. So that's that's already, you already have a scandal right there. Okay, and then when Jesus was born, they had to flee their homeland because King Herod ordered a decree that uh, all of the children, all the male children under the age of two were to be murdered because he was threatened by Jesus's potential kingship, although he didn't understand the way in which Christ would come to rule. So. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had to flee their homeland uh, to Egypt. Now, both were, both Israel and Egypt at that time were in the Roman Empire. But to the Jews, Israel was their homeland. And so they were fleeing to a different place. Technically, you could say that puts them in a, a refugee status. Now, eventually they came back because Herod died. But then... Look at the life of Jesus. Okay. He was a carp he was the son of a carpenter. They weren't wealthy people. And then when during Jesus's ministry, he walked the dusty roads of Israel, working up a sweat along with 12 other disciples who were working up a sweat too. The chances are 
they didn't have degree uh, underarm deodorant. They probably all smelled like B.O. Then, of course, Christ was crucified in a place where Jerusalem dumped its garbage. So in a both physical and metaphorical way, God has been in the stink with us. He knows what it's like to be bloody, smelly, and dirty. That, to me, that's the gift of Christmas, the gift of the incarnation, that God would come in the flesh to his creations and experience the full reality of human humanity, while at the same time reconciling us back to him. So that's about all I, about... I'm not from Canada, I'm from Minnesota. That's about all I have to say on those subjects. But I do want to talk about um, one thing, one Christmas story that's funny to me, which revolves around the Council of Nicaea and St. Nicholas. Now, during the Council of Nicaea, they were um, grappling with the issue of Jesus's divinity and whether he existed before uh, becoming incarnate in Jesus and it also had to do with him being is he God or was he just uh, adopted by God and so there were the adoptionists and part of the uh, adoptionist crew were the Arians I believe led by Arius and it was technically a heretical view but he was able to speak at the Council of Nicaea, um, you know, uh, defending his claim. But sitting in the audience, there was St. Nicholas, who is the uh, inspiration for Santa Claus. And he was getting so pissed off by what Arius had to say, he walked up to the podium and he slapped Arius across the face. And uh, so if you look online, there's all sorts of funny memes about uh, Santa or Saint Nick slapping heretics. It It's funny. You know, I probably didn't do the story justice, but I think it's funny. Yep. So this is Christmas. I hope everyone's having a, a good Christmas season. Um, it's certainly probably my second favorite holiday after Easter. One of the things that I like about Christmas is think is gifts, but I like thinking about not really necessary material gifts, but what gifts God has given to me. And I think that definitely this podcast is a, a gift from from God to me. And technology that enables a podcast is also a, a gift. Uh, when I get on these podcasts, the, one of the main reasons why I do it is because I just get so excited about what I read when I do normal Bible study and also what I when I learn in school. So I'm just filled to the brim with uh, information that I just want to share with everybody. And I know that I'm probably not the most eloquent person in the world. I know that I'm probably not the easiest to listen to because I trip over my words, I stutter, blah, blah, blah. And I know it's probably not the most interesting and not everybody cares what I have to say. In fact, tonight I had somebody say to my face that they never care what I have to say. So <laughs> that was fun. 
but this podcast uh, it's it's a gift and i try to and and hopefully it's a gift to other people and that's you know all i can hope is that jesus uses it to help and um educate other people and i don't think it's ever wrong to put that kind of hope in jesus so uh, I just want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. I think I'm going to wrap it up here. If you have any questions about what I covered or anything, or you want to say anything about something that I didn't, didn't cover or you wished I had covered, give you can send me an email. It's theologytaco at gmail.com. And there's also a Twitter feed and Instagram account, which is just at uh, theologytaco. Oh. Hopefully uh, you'll catch me next time. I'm not sure what my next podcast will be. There's a few things that I'm considering, but nothing set in stone. Have a great holiday. Merry Christmas.